Hello, I'm Phil Svitek, 360 Creative Coach, and welcome to my blog, where it is both my mission and my pleasure to highlight my creative journey in hopes of inspiring you, giving you specific takeaway. All that way, your creative journey can be at least a little bit easier. Now, before I fully dive into things, I would like to take the opportunity to invite you to subscribe if you haven't already. That way you get all the various lessons and episodes that I put out right when I put them out. Thank you if you just did, and thank you if you already were. It truly does mean a lot to me, as I hope it does to you. So, let's get into it. Lots of exciting stuff uh, last week. So, number one, I want to talk about kind of what happened in our industry, so to speak, and kind of some thought processes that were going through my mind in reaction to that. And specifically, I'm talking about uh, Warner Brothers and what's going on with their slate of movies and uh, their new CEO, David Zaslav. So just to kind of catch you up fully, Discovery bought out Warner Brothers. Right, so AT&T used to own Warner Brothers, but they didn't uh, want to be in that game anymore, so they sold it off to Discovery, and now Discovery and Warner Brothers are merged together. And the new CEO is David Zaslav, who is notorious uh, for penny-pinching, really, right? Um, for knowing how to maximize, uh, and maximize in terms of spending little but making a lot, right? Not a bad quality as far as, you know, business, but when it comes to the entertainment side, you know, um, it can sometimes leave a little bit to be desired. And the big kind of news uh, coming out before uh, their earnings call, which was Thursday, was that that they essentially were going to shelve Batgirl and Scooby-Doo and potentially some other movies that were pretty much finished. And Batgirl, for all intents and purposes... Nearly finished, cost them about $90 million. Just, they were going to do away with it. Scooby-Doo, kind of nearly complete, about $40 million. You know, um, they weren't going to do anything with it. And when I say do anything, uh, not releasing in theaters, not releasing in streaming, like literally just gone from the face of the earth type of thing, right? Now, that's, you know, as an artist, obviously... For me, that really, really sucks um, because there's that aspect of, yeah, I mean, the fact that like these companies, in theory, have all this money where they could just spend $90 million and literally just throw it away, essentially. And, and it happens a lot with TV pilots where, you know, during pilot season, as we call it, a lot of you know first episodes get commissioned and then they're brought back to the networks. And the network decides which it wants to keep and which it's going to let go by the wayside. And so, you know, there's the cost of development. But this wasn't development. This was, you know, a movie that was already greenlit and nearly complete. So very strange in that way. And for me, again, as an artist, very infuriating that, you know, I'm having to beg, borrow, and steal just to scrounge together. I mean, both my movies combined, you know, have cost less than $50,000, and yet they have $90 million to just make something and and not do anything with it, right? So, in that sense, wildly infuriating. um, This idea, my friend 
Khalil and I, we often talk about it like, oh, there's money. Um, you know, they just don't want to give it to you type of thing, right? Like for some reason, whenever, whenever companies, and it's not just our inner entertainment business, but just in general, when companies want, there always seems to be money for something, but just not for you. Um, and that's a oversimplification and uh, not always the case, but, you know, in a capitalistic, capitalistic society, that does actually tend to be the case. I mean, there's certainly been instances that I've observed um, even during the pandemic where companies will say, okay, you know, we need to kind of tighten the ship, you know, we're not going to match your 401ks anymore and sort of we're going to cut back on benefits and we're going to ask and some companies even ask like, you know, employees to, okay, anyone making over X amount of money, let's say $100,000, you're going to get a pay cut of 10%. um, And yet it never seems to apply to CEOs, number one. Number two, as all of this is happening, they're acquiring X, Y, and Z company for you know, $350 million or something like that. Like it's, um, and it's, you know, it's enough to make your head spin in that way. And that's why like, oh, there's money. (laughs) You know, they just don't want to give it to you. That type of thing does tend to hold up more often than not. Um, But, you know, so also just to kind of round things out, one of the reasons that Warner Brothers can do it is because, because of the merger, they can actually like, write that off. I mean, I don't know all the actual logistics, but because it's a project created not through the, the, the heads of, you know, Warner and Discovery as they are merged now, they can essentially write it off, um, through some sort of loophole, right? Um, ask me to explain it. I couldn't, but that's kind of why the decision to do it, which, from that perspective, yes, I, I, I guess I, underst- I understand it, um, but, you know, a couple of things. Number one, for me, it got me to thinking, like, what are the benefits of being an indie filmmaker? And as hard as it is, it is insanely hard as an indie um, filmmaker. And by the way, just indie artist in general, right? Um, so if I use the, the term indie filmmaker, I really mean just artist, right? So that can be poetry, that can be music, that can be painting, photography, uh, writing, uh, theater, right? Anything of that kind where you're just doing it on an independent level is really grueling. Oftentimes, you don't have the financial means, you don't have the resources, the manpower a lot of times, and and it's very difficult. And But, you know, there is a trade-off where for better or worse, you are in control. And for better or worse, uh, you know, they can't do that to you, right? They can't just say like, hey, you, you, you're doing this project and then they're going to take it away. And I was really kind of thinking about that aspect of it for myself of, you know, with my second feature film, as we're talking with distributors and so forth, it really became of like you know, is, is the more viable option, is the, is the smarter option just to self-distribute? Um, because I know, as far as money's concerned, I know the, the amount of people that I would need to get in order to 
essentially recoup the, the finances of it. Um, and it's a grind, but it's not as many people as one would think, right? The uh, Kevin Kelly's uh, 1,000 true fans model certainly holds up in that sense. Uh, look it up if you're unfamiliar. Um, I've done, by the way, an episode about this, The Power of a Small Fan Base, uh, one of my very first episodes. Um, so I encourage you to check that out. But, yeah, so that, that holds up, and it's not to say that it wouldn't be a lot of work to essentially have to market it myself. But at least in that sense, A, there's the financial benefit, um, and B, there would be this direct interaction with the audience, right? Which is something key for me as far as, you know, as a, as a filmmaker because I want to make more movies and, and I want to be able to have that fan base that is interested in the stuff that I have to create. And so by having a more direct relationship with them, that's beneficial. But I was talking with uh, a friend of mine who, you know, is a lawyer, has that background, and she was saying that, well, the difference is, you know, essentially with Warner Brothers, all those people were hired guns working for the studio, whereas you have a completed movie. And so either, you know, anyone that, uh, that goes after is, is not going to shelve it, right? Cause they're getting it specifically because they want to distribute it. And ultimately they're essentially licensing it, you know, um, for a number of years, it's not like they're outright buying it. Um, and so in that sense, uh, you know, I'm protected, right? So, you know, that, that kind of got me to change up my thinking. And, you know, I've been exploring that side of things. And, and overall, that's been going really well. Um, as far as everything. And, and it's, it's just been interesting to learn, you know, with the the idea that as long as you have a, a decent feature film, you can get distribution for it, right? And that was something that I learned with my first film. And that's why I knew I can get distribution with this movie. And now, really, the name of the game for me is, well, what's the best deal that I can get? And so, for me, it's just having that patience to, you know, have the conversations, ask meaningful questions, and, you know, not not be so gung-ho and yeah, be like, Hey, okay. You know, what if we change this? Or like, you know what? I, I would like this included or whatever it may be. And also just wait for, you know, the, the various offers to come in and then decide which one is the best. Right. Uh, but that's kind of where we're at in the process. Um, as far as that. And I know I'm kind of jumping back and forth um, between like Warner Brothers and then how it affects me and then back to Warner Brothers. Um, so I apologize for that. Uh, hopefully you're able to follow along. But going back to Warner Brothers specifically, the, the, the takeaway from me through all of this is that what, what the new CEO is going after on paper isn't a negative. And in fact, it's something that I talked about a while ago as far as what streaming platforms and studios should aspire to. And 
you know, th- th- this really kind of came about because when Netflix, after qu- the first quarter, suffered uh, losses for the first time in, in terms of subscribership, every entertainment publication that I was reading, like, just was baffled by this and had no solutions. And I just, it, it, was, it was astounding that no one could think of a singular thing to help the situation. They were just... You know, like, oh my God, this is crazy, and what's going to happen to Netflix, and this and that. I was like, guys, it's very simple. And in my mind, the simplicity of it is you can't just put movies on streaming. You have to have them go to theater. Because theater makes money, right? And not only that, it's, it's a great way to create cultural relevance, There's a stickiness to a movie that is placed in a theater that just creates a long tail. It's not just, you know, you watch it one weekend, one and done, go. There's a relevance to it, you know? And I I first started noticing this when, like, you know, movies like Shrek were number one on Netflix, right? It was like, how is this possible? Well, because it's a beloved movie. Well, how did it become beloved? Because... It had that longevity of it played in the theaters, people saw it there, then, then they got the, 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 the DVDs and the Blu-rays and whatever else, you know, and then we were able to watch it at home and so forth. And it just an infinity grew for it, right? And so in that way, even if a movie in my mind doesn't make all of its money back, like let's say it's considered like a box office flop, well, at least it made some money. And listen, I understand that it costs money to market a movie that goes theatrically. But it costs money to, to market it if it just goes straight to a streamer. So in that sense, you know, you're still marketing it. I understand there's a difference in price. But, you know, nonetheless, by having it in a the theater, you start to make money back. And it creates, regardless of the return, it creates this sort of you know, word of mouth. It just, it just creates this press around it. And then, you know, it can go to, you know, Blu-ray and, you know, a video on demand and then eventually to streaming where it's accessible for that subscription cost, right? And it's just like that, that should be the shelf life of it, right? And, so that was kind of like the first tier of solutions. The next tier, like, you know, getting away from binge models because just in general, um, you know, seeing the data on things, yeah, it's, it, you consume it and then it's done. Um, obviously from the standpoint of putting the stuff out there, that means you have to have a much higher churnout, meaning more stuff to program. Because, you know, each weekend you need something new as opposed to like, okay, you know, um, starting in May, we've got this series and it'll go on for 10 weeks and you get to enjoy it. So you get to space it out a little bit. And audiences enjoy that because it gives them more breathing room. And actually, people tend to enjoy shows, statistically speaking, when they don't binge them, right? And so that, that is a big component of it, right? So that was, that was like uh, solution number two. And then solution number three was just this allowing people to purchase a season of a TV show even without the subscription, 
or a movie without the subscription, right? Like, you know, there's tons of great shows on Apple TV Plus, but I don't have Apple TV Plus. And for some reason, I don't feel the need to get it. And yet there's certain shows that, yes, I, I, I'm willing to watch. And the irony is probably you get a lot more of my money by me buying individual seasons than even the subscription, right? And the same thing with movies and, and just allowing people to purchase the movie through video on demand, but a physical as well. Um, so just creating multiple streams of revenue is essentially what the aim is, right? And that on paper is what essentially David Zasloff, the CEO of now Discovery and Warner Brothers, is doing. So on paper, all that makes sense, right? But the, the, the missteps, as I see it, is, is in these, right? Number one, I've said this before, whenever you have to make a tough decision, there's just a better way to handle it, right? And so shelving Batgirl and all these other movies, okay, sometimes you got to do what you got to do. I'm not, say- I'm not saying I agree with it, but let's say like that, that is, you know, truly the best decision. There's a better way to handle it. You know, speak to the, the filmmakers themselves and, and you know what, offer them up something, you know, of like, hey, it, it's because it's not enough like, oh, well, you got paid to make it and you're hired gun, whatever. Like, no, they want to make stuff. And so maybe you green light a passion project of theirs. I don't know, but just speak with them. No different than when HBO, you know, Warner Brothers a while ago announced that, you know, in uh, what year was it at this point? In, in 2021, right, that they would have all those uh, movies go, you know, theatrical and on HBO Max same day. And a lot of filmmakers, like uh, Denny Villeneuve, who came out with Dune, and, you know, other filmmakers were like, what the hell? No, what is this cra- crazy thing? And in fact, that's why, like, uh, Christopher Nolan had left Warner Brothers to now go work with Universal, was because of, of that decision, essentially. And so... Now, you've you, you really essentially pissed off a lot of talent, and that's not good. I, I think people undervalue that. And so I just, you know, whenever hard decisions need to be made, I implore you and just the world to think about the better way to handle it and to have some humility and, and humbleness and, and empathy, right, for the people being affected by this, because it does suck. Right. Uh, And, you know, also just in general, the the consolidation of these various companies also leads to homogenization. And so when we talk about quality, it's always interesting to me how the how just businesses in general think that known brands will automatically do well. And if that was the case, you know, there's there's uh, the film cast, which is which is a, a movie podcast, and each year they do what's called the summer movie wager. So all the hosts and uh, and kind of a guest guests as well, 
they participate in this and they select the top 10 movies that they think, you know, that they're predicting the top 10 movies of the summer. And, you know, it basically starts from Labor Day to Memorial Day or vice versa. I always get the two confused. Uh, and, you know, it's a fun game because it ultimately reveals just how wrong we ultimately all end up being. And I say I include myself and others because, you know, people get to participate. Uh, uh, you know, if you type in some summer movie wager, you'll see other participants there as well. And then, you know, I imagine they'll keep it going and in the future. If you'd like, you can participate as well. You know, you just have to get in your votes before the start of the competition is how it all works. But yeah, so you, you kind of look at that, you reflect upon that, and you look at how terribly we are at predicting these things. Because no one predicted Top Gun Maverick being the number one movie of the year, really. Um, and that's astounding, right? And just the way, like Lightyear, you know, everyone had performing much higher than it did and so forth, right? And so none of this stuff guarantees you the return in that way, right? No one predicted everything everywhere all at once as a movie would, would do as good as it ever did, right? And that's the exciting part, right? And to me, you know, quality, quality requires talent and it also requires being bold. Not everything's going to hit and things like that, but just to, to play it small and, and try to go after surefire bets in a way that's kind of what got Warner Brothers into the pickle that they're in. And just, you know, a lot of other studios as well. And so, you know, I, I hope that um, things are expanded. And, you know, the beautiful part is, as much as other people like to complain that there is no original content out there. To me, I just say they're not looking hard enough because there's just some amazing stuff out there. You know, one of my favorite movies of this year is called Petite Maman. And uh, it's this French film. It's based, it almost has no dialogue. It, it, it just uses one song. Um, very basic editing, very basic shot composition, and it and it's uses two child actors to essentially. So it's writing a lot on these two kids essentially to tell its story, but it but it works, and it's so beautiful and things like that, right? So this stuff does exist, and if anything, we just need to champion it right especially as artists like when we see something beautiful someone else is doing let's let's let, let's applaud that and let people know because we would want the same for us especially as independent artists right so that's how this all sort of ties back in that way uh, so yeah it's, it, it, it just kind of has me thinking a lot and you know, even though, so for me, I'm very much leaning towards going with a distributor and almost, uh, you know, have someone in mind who I like and we've spoken and so forth. Um, I won't say who because it's subject to change and, you know, I could go with somebody else, but we'll see. 
Um, but either way, my mind always goes to the idea of bypassing gatekeepers. So whether it comes to film financing, whether it comes to distribution or just all channels in general, I don't like middlemen. You know, I play within the arena as much as possible. And yes, it would be wonderful to have someone underwrite my next movie. So that way I didn't have to beg, borrow and steal sort of thing to come up with the funding. Uh, but you know, if that's not the case, then I'll find a way. Right. Uh, and so whenever, like basically my mind oftentimes, like that's what I spend most of my time really thinking about is how to make things, even if I get a no. Right. So if there's if I get a no in terms of financing, okay, how do I get the financing myself? And then how do I make it, you know, as cheaply as possible, yet achieve the result of quality that I'm aiming for? Right. You know, how do I get it out there? And that's why for me, NFTs and just um, sort of the idea of Web3 is interesting. You know, I had. Uh, a very good lunch yesterday with my friend AJ and we talked a lot about this you know he's in the tech side and he's like very smart and we, we talked about he's like you know what side of this are you interested in you know we had like a two to three hour conversation about all of this stuff and yeah I, I always use technology as a means to help me right Robert Rodriguez in creation he talks about it like working at the speed of thought you know, what, what ways can you utilize to, to create the things that you want creatively? You know, if, if you can learn the, the technical aspects and, and they just allow you to do the things that you want to do creatively. Uh, you know, certainly someone like a James Cameron is someone like that who literally created, you know, all these new technologies to be able to make his Avatar movies because he envisioned this thing and the technology didn't exist. And so he went out and, you know, made it. That's kind of the idea. And so I look for, uh, you know, sometimes I try to create my own methods as much as possible, but then I also, you know, what are the trends within just all these various, you know, areas that would allow me for that. And in fact, um, I know this is going to go on a slight tangent, but I I do want to talk about this because it is related. So my influences, right? Um, It's interesting because whenever I watch behind-the-scenes featurettes of, you know, movies that I love, the filmmakers inevitably talk about their influences, and it's like Scorsese, Kubrick, Kurosawa, um, you know, Hitchcock, and so forth. And not knocking any of those people, but it's always interesting how there tends to be, like, this list of, of, of people. And I'm always amazed because my, like, my list is just so almost seemingly random. So like film wise, here would be my influences. Thomas Winterberg, who created the, you know, one of, was one of the creators of the Dogma 95 movement. He directed Another Round, which won an Oscar. That's probably what like American audiences would know him most for. Uh, Rob Rodriguez, right? Um, I've seen basically, mo- not all of his movies, but most of his movies. And I love how like just different he is, you know, from Sin City to, 
you know, his action movies like El Mariachi, the Grindhouse stuff he did with Quentin Tarantino, I think is amazing. You know, Spy Kids, I think is so much fun. Like, it's, it's just, he just runs the gamut and, you know, the, he's also able to do, uh, to direct Star Wars, um, TV episodes. Like, it's just all wonderful, right? Uh, Wong Kar Wai, he's such a mood sort of director, um, and so inventive and bold. Love him. Richard Link, Richard, Richard Linklater, who like basically just defies genre convention, you know, like a scanner darkly, um, waking life, the before trilogy, uh, you know, he did boyhood. Like he just does these movies that just, you know, like on paper, you're like, what, how, how does, how would this ever get made? And what is this even about? Will people ever watch it? And he's he just, he's just so bold and gets them made. I love it. Um, Sergio Leone, you know, um, all, all his spaghetti westerns, um, you know, there's a lot of, um, Czech directors that I love. Um, there's Eli Kazan, you know, most notably for like On the Waterfront, you know, one of my favorite movies, Michel Gondry, he's so inventive and practical and, and just fun. Um, Billy Wilder, right? With film noir, Terry Gilliam, um, Hayao Miyazaki, like, um, these are my influences, right? And, and I love that eclectic mix, uh, you know, it, it, it all, it all gets swirled together in this like film soup, but it's not just that. I also love, you know, all kinds of books, you know, both fiction and nonfiction and, you know, there is like di- different as one can get. And, and so I love it. I, and oftentimes I feel like an outsider to a lot of people because I have such different tastes, you know, and, and what's also interesting is that I thought about, you know, growing up and playing soccer, even within, let's say America, um, soccer was played by usually multicultural kids. And so you're always, it's a diverse ideology, you know, it's diverse people, therefore diverse thinking. And so, that tends to uh, intrigue you, right? And then I, I was lucky enough, I got to travel to various places to play soccer. Um, and, you know, that furthered that sort of diversity. And then in general, even even whenever I just travel for pleasure, um, what's great about soccer is that um, in most areas of the world, and especially now with like all these apps, like Meetup, for example, you can play soccer anywhere in the world, um, with anybody. <laughs> and it's just great. Right. And so, you know, all that stuff has kind of influenced me and, and yeah, I appreciate because it doesn't necessarily put me in this box. And so the reason why it all ties together and why I went off on this long tangent is because I always look at these things from different ways. And I'm curious both from the the creative standpoint as well as like I'll call it the platform standpoint, you know, like the 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 pipeline of how things get made, distributed, how you know, how money can be um uh you know, earned from that, right? Like I love I love from the start of it to the end of it, you know, creatively, I love, I mean, I love the creativity side of it, right? 
Um, that's the most exciting part. And many times I wish that I could just focus on the macro of the full pipeline. Like, um, for example, you know, let's just say, you know, I know, I know what's required to take a movie fully into distribution, but, um, the amount of just minutia that entails, uh, and if you're going to do it yourself, is quite a lot, right? We're talking music cue sheets, we're talking subtitles, um, all these different things that, you know, generally, as consumers, we don't necessarily consider, but there's a lot of time and effort that has to go into creating those, quality controlling those, and so forth, right? And certainly, I, you know, as a consumer, I hate when just subtitles are hard to read and things of that nature. So for me, I always even try to put a lot of thought into that. Um, but yeah, I mean, that notion of, you know, speaking with AJ, it, it, it was just great because it sparked a lot of ideas and it clarified for him, like what my intentions are. Right. And there, there was also stuff that he kind of said, like, you know, are you interested in this? And I said, you know, I'm at the point in life where yes, that is true intriguing to me, but I also have to know the phases to get to there. And so it's like, it's not a, it, right now, it's not something that I'm, I would be able to undertake, nor would it excite me to undertake right now because I'm, these are my priorities. But as time goes on, yeah, that is intriguing to me. And so, so it was great um, in that way. And, you know, certainly I want to get more into the NFT space Um you know, quite, you know, quite simply put, the idea, and I'm trying to figure out both from a legal standpoint, both both from a marketing standpoint, and, and just you know, best practices and so forth. Like, what makes the most sense? You know, having using NFT as a utility to crowdfund, right? And the reason why that's intriguing is because you know you're essentially selling off parts of the movie, you know, and how many parts and for how much and this and that. Like that, that's all stuff that needs to be answered, but is interesting to me, right? Um, because yeah, I, I want it like that. I, w- I look at it as a utility to get to create the stuff that I want to keep creating. And then by extension also, you know, the idea that I talked about of having a direct access to that audience, well, then, you know, through smart contracts and so forth, like, yeah, you, you, you know, all that it's there. And that, and in fact, it's, a little bit part of the culture is that anytime someone buys an NFT, like, and you make something new, they essentially are the first ones to then be able to tap into that. And it's like, you know, um, uh, in the business, we kind of call it like a first right of refusal. It's not exactly like that, but um, it's similar enough in that, right? So that excites me. Um, And yeah, so, you know, that, as far as any of that stuff that will be coming down the line, um, you know, the fun part is I just finished um, uh, an outline for um, for a movie I'd like to write to, to make, and so you know I've talked a little bit about this, but just to expand upon it, I've essentially written two movie outlines, and both are movies that I'd love to make. Both have pros and cons to them. Um, two completely different styles. And, you know, essentially, uh, there's, you know, the, the people that have been with me 
for a while, you know, um, on, on both my movies, but as well as before that and so forth, my like frequent collaborators, I said, you know what, I'm going to do a dealer's choice. You, I want to reward you <laughs> um, for everything. And so you get to decide which excites you most and which you want to make, you know? Um, and so I had, I'd finished one outline about a week and a half ago, maybe two weeks. And finally now I finished the second one. And though my intention was to have finished this <laughs> a month or two ago, um, all the same, it, you know, progress was being made on, on both of them. And, uh, and I'm excited. I'm excited that uh, now, you know, that they're able to read both and now make a decision. So I, I'm looking forward to that. While they, you know, and I'm giving them time to really consider it, think it over. Like there's, it's a lot in both outlines. Um, and I'm, for me, I'm going to utilize that time to create the deliverables for distribution, right? So regardless of what happens and which company I go with, um, the deliverables end up being the same, really. So things like, Music cue sheet, subtitle, you know, uh, there's, uh, with with, with a film, you send them a version that is textless, meaning anything that has text you take out and you just send that version, then you send the text version, so that's there, Um, and just, yeah, all these, like, you know, there's audio requirements, Um, you know, usually you send, like, what we call stems, so, you know, meaning individual tracks. So there's a dialogue track, a music track, an effects track. And then even within that, there's variations um, and so forth. So, yeah, it's, uh, you know, going to be working on that. So while, while they're reading the outlines, I'm going to be working on this and getting ahead of it. Um, it will take me a little bit out of the creative, but, um, but it is necessary and, uh, yeah, I mean, the one thing I'd love to do is really get back into novel writing. You know, I revised a couple of the early chapters, um, and I, I keep getting to this point. Um, like, now, now I know I'm ready, um, but for the longest time, I kept, like, getting to this chapter, and I just couldn't, like start this chapter and get it like really done. And that was because of what it essentially mounted to like plot holes earlier. Right. You know, I couldn't figure out this thing that would then make sense in the chapter that I was writing. So then of course I couldn't write it because it wasn't set up. Now I've done that legwork and you know, I know the rest of the chapters will be fun um, because in many ways I've already written them. um, Meaning the the novel that I'm writing started off as a script and the script has been fully written and it's gone through various iterations. Now, because it's a novel, I've altered it, um, you know, and expanded it uh, to basically allow for anything because, you know, if I can think it, I can write it type of thing. Whereas with the script, I was trying to be very cognizant of budget restraints and so forth. And in terms of what was possible to film, uh, you know, within my realm, right? And so, you know, um, the the setup was different, but then 
as it continues, um, it generally borrows from the script. And so in that sense, it'll be easier to write. And so I, I, I think I'm predicting that if I just get over this one chapter, then it will start to create this uh, much easier flow. That's the hope. Uh, maybe I'm lying to myself, who knows, but, um, but I really, yeah, I'm like, by hell or high water, I'm gonna write this chapter and then continue on. And um, yeah, so that's, that's sort of exciting for me as well. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what I've got going on, the stuff that's going on in my mind. Um, you know, exciting times, um, I think, you know, uh, especially since, you know, the theme for a little bit was just frustration and just dealing with, dealing with things. Now, you know, just through like that determination and just continuing to work and never being upset at myself, right? Um, you know, perfection is the enemy of good. And also just progress, not perfection, right? Like, even though, like, let's say with the outlines, it took me longer than I wished. um, All the same, we got to this point, right? Um, And those are complete. Likewise, you know, even now as we're finishing up, you know, the VFX adjustments for a Bogota trip, which is the name of my second movie, those came in. Uh, Edgar, my sound designer, uh, he was able to like roll up his sleeves and, uh, you know, make, make adjustments. And what's funny about him, you know, there's certain things he's like, I, that weren't even on my list. And he's like, I'm going to make that better. I was like, you really don't need to, like, I, I like it as is. And he's like, no, no, no I want to improve it. I'm like, okay, okay. Um, and that's why I love him. You know, each of us are in our own way are kind of like perfectionists and, um, that elevates the project, right? We, we, we take pride in what we're doing, you know, which is great. So, yeah, that's, that's about it, really. Um, thank you, as always. Comment down below with any thoughts or questions if you have them, or hit me up on social media at Phil Svitek. And if you appreciate what I do and think you might benefit from more direct interaction, well, there's my coaching. Uh, this is linked to down in the description box. Um, that is available to you if that is too steep at the moment or you just want to uh, dip your toes in a little bit. Well, that's what my Patreon page is for, patreon.com slash philsvitek. There's various tiers of support with various rewards. Uh, I encourage you to check that out. Likewise, you know, I've been talking about the various things that I've been getting to make and creating, you know, whether it's my movies, uh, my fiction books, my nonfiction books, you know, merchandise and stuff like that. All that is linked to down below for you as well. Supporting that stuff helps support this because, you know, it's a symbiotic thing um, where by creating and having that stuff be self-sustaining in a sense, I can make more of it. Therefore, I learn all the various lessons and can share them here freely with you. Um, And likewise, it would just mean a lot to me if like, you know, people saw my art. So um, yeah, I hope you do and I hope you enjoy it. Anyway, thank you so much. As always, I appreciate you and hope to see you next time.